the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Do we have the courage to live out what we say we believe? And then what makes Trump's support so durable? You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Monday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on this Monday evening. Hope you're heading home from work. The week is upon us. Aubrey Sampson, my normal co-host, will be back with me again tomorrow. Looking forward to having Aubrey back from vacation. And uh, yeah, we'll be back the rest of the week together. If you've missed any of the shows over the last week or so, go get the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. All right, I want to talk about the concept of virtue signaling and also uh, living out what we say we believe, because that's really a huge thing for us as Christians to do. And so uh, virtue signaling is basically a public expression of opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or social conscience. I'm reading this from the Oxford Dictionary or the moral correctness of one's position on a uh, particular issue. And oftentimes it comes with, it's a public declaration, but does it match privately? It's wanting people out there to know what we think. And in the world of Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, virtue signaling is really easy to do. That's a platform. In many ways, that's what those exist for. But what happens when something you tweet out comes back at you? That's what is in the process of happening. And I don't know how this is going to end, but that's what's happening to Ben and Jerry's. You know, the ice cream. Do you love Ben and Jerry's ice cream? Uh, Ben and Jerry's from their Twitter account on the 4th of July, the company said in a statement on the 4th of July, the U.S. was founded on stolen indigenous land this year. Let's commit to returning to it. So. You know, some people thought that was a wonderful statement. There were other people who were like, really, you're choosing the 4th of July to make that statement? That seems weird for an ice cream place to be doing. Whatever. If you believe it, you believe it, and you believe it to the point of tweeting it out there on the 4th of July. Well, now, here's what has happened. An, indig- an indigenous chief wants to take back Ben and Jerry's headquarters built on, quote, Stolen land. Here's the background. An indigenous tribe descended from the Native American nation that originally controlled the land in Vermont that the Ben and Jerry's headquarters is located on would be interested in taking it back, the chief has said, after the company publicly called for stolen lands to be returned. Don Stevens, he's the chief, I can't even pronounce it, of this one particular tribe, uh, which is one of the four descended from the Abenaki that are recognized in Vermont told Newsweek it was always interested in reclaiming the stewardship of our lands, but that the company had not yet approached them. Uh, 
It added that the land back movement, oh, this was Ben and Jerry's original statement, was about ensuring that the indigenous people could again govern the land their communities called home for thousands of years, although their focus was much on the land of the Lakata in South Dakota. Ben and Jerry's has not made a comment yet. The tribe, the chief of the tribe said that they had not been approached in regards to any land back opportunities from Ben and Jerry's. If and when we're approached, many conversations and discussions will need to take place to determine the best path forward for all involved. And again, Ben and Jerry's had not yet responded. This, my friends, is fascinating. I read this and I, I found it. Is is ironic? This might not be ironic. I found it funny. I found it, um, what are they going to do? If either they truly believe in what they tweeted the other day, like to the core of their being, they should be excited to give back their land then. And I'm not even saying this to be like poke at them. I'm not even saying this to be cynical. I'm saying legitimately if they fully believe what they tweeted the other day and then they are presented with this opportunity, they should be excited to go and be kind of at the forefront of this, to be an example, to say, look, this is what we mean. This is not easy, but this is what we mean. I don't think any of us believe they're going to do that, though. And then it calls and if they don't do it, this is what makes this so difficult. If they don't do it, If they were like, no, no, we meant that land over there, or we meant this. If they don't do it, then it calls into complete question that all they were doing this for was virtue signaling, for some notoriety, for whatever ulterior motive it was. So they have an opportunity, although it may not be one that they're excited about, to lead the way here. I'm going to be watching this one. I want to see how this ends. It might just go away. But uh, yeah. Careful what you tweet out, right? Unless you're really planning on doing it yourself. And this brings us back to the plank in our own eyes, right? Like it's easy to point out things like Ben and Jerry's. But Jesus always told us, when you're going to point out the speck in another person's eyes, make sure to first take a look at your own eyes. So me as a preacher, as a pastor, how many times have I gotten up and said things from the pulpit that I may not be living out on my own. We're none of us are perfect. We get it. But is the goal ultimately authenticity that says, I'm going to live out as best I can what I say I proclaim to believe. And you don't need to be a pastor just as a Christ follower. When you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. He is my King. Do you then regularly take stock of your life and say, what are the places that do not fall in line in this? What are the places that other people look at my life and say, that's hypocritical, or that's not true, or you're not living that way? Am I willing to then say, okay, I understand that, and I'm going to try to change that. I'm going to try to put this under the lordship of Jesus. Or are our public proclamations of faith never intended for us to cause private internal changes. I read this and I, 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 I got to be honest, I laughed. I thought this was really funny. I'm very interested to see how this turns out. Probably nothing's going to come of it. 
but I was most convicted of where in my life are there places in my life where what I say I believe does not match with how I actually live. And then what is my response to that? Is it repentance? Is it, oh, I want to make the changes so this falls under more um, what I say I believe? Or is it hiding? Is it darkness? Is it, oh, I don't want to have to deal with that? Bible talks a lot about that. What, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? Woe to you, Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, full of death and decay on the out, inside. So deal with what's on the inside, he says. How many of us are not dealing with what's on the inside and our faith comes out to just be in some ways virtue signaling? Like, uh, yeah, oh no, I, I didn't know that I actually had to live this out. I didn't know that you were actually watching people out there. I didn't know. It's easy to say things. It's easy to tweet things. It's easy to retweet a Bible verse or a sermon or whatever else. The difficulty says is this, that I believe this so much to my core that it's going to dictate how I live my life on a day-to-day basis. If Ben and Jerry's does that, I will be the first one to come on these airwaves and go, good for them. Good for them for living out what they believe and being the first ones to do it. But this is where the rubber meets the road. So what about you? What about you, Christ follower? Where are the areas in your life where there may be uh, disconnect, where things may not be matching up? And do you believe strongly enough to make those changes? So we're going to see what the ice cream people do. Let's see what Ben and Jerry's does. Let's see if they truly believe that which they said. Well, coming up next, one of the friends of our show, David French, I want to, I want to visit an article that he wrote over at the New York Times asking, why is Trump support so durable even now? Going to look at that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. A presidential election is just around the corner, which feels crazy because it does feel like just yesterday that we finished the last one, but it, I guess we're in a perpetual presidential election. Um, and at the forefront again in the Republican Party is former President Trump. Uh, he is the clear-cut favorite at the moment. Now, obviously, a thousand things can change between now and the nomination. But right now, uh, he is far outpacing, it appears, uh, the other people, especially Governor DeSantis, who most people think is the biggest threat to President Trump getting the nomination. But then you got people like Nikki Haley and uh, Tim Scott and other people. But it's left a lot of people. I, cards on the table. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I am not a big uh, Donald Trump guy. I don't get it. Um I'm not, I don't think he's he's the worst person in the world. I don't think he's the savior of the world. Uh, but I also don't I don't want him to be president again. So there you go. Some of you that caused you to turn your radios off. But uh, I I say that for this reason. David French, who is a renowned um, never Trump guy. He writes, he's been on this show many times, but he writes at the New York Times and at other places. And in his newsletter this week, he wrote this. 
He's asking the question, why is Trump's support so durable still, right? Like, regardless of what you believe specifically about whether it be January 6th uh, or other things, the impeachments, the, 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 you know, the, the cases that are coming up against Trump now, the question is, for a lot of us, it's still shocking that President Trump, uh, former President Trump, still has this level of support. And because just be it's shocking because it's never happened before. Like this isn't the way it works usually, especially to someone who lost an election. And so the question hanging out there for a lot of us is what what is it at its core? The make America great again movement, right? The MAGA movement. What what at its core makes it so durable? Why Trump? You you remember in t- before he won the presidency in 2016, President Trump famously said, uh, I could go out and shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose support. And everyone just rolled their eyes and said, oh, come on. And it's kind of turned out to be true. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole. Um, but he's done a lot of things that you just start to go. I don't think he could ever lose support of a from a segment of the Republican Party. So why is it durable, David French asks? He says this, Trump channels rage and joy. His movement features fury and fun. It creates a sense of camaraderie and belonging that no other GOP politician can yet match. What's toxic to outsiders is a band of brothers on the insider, to the insiders. I think he's right. I think he's right. I think that what people miss, I think what people miss is that Donald Trump's followers have a camaraderie with one another. Dare I use a church world, a community to which they would give anything for. Uh, and it's, it's kind of wild. French talks about how he lives in Tennessee, which is very much Donald Trump country. Uh, and he said, this is the world of my friends, my neighbors, and many members of my, fa- of, my f- uh, of my family. That is perhaps why when I'm asked what things are like now, eight years into the Trump era, I have a ready answer. Everything is normal, uh, French says, until suddenly it's not. And unless we can understand what's normal and what's not, we can, can't truly understand why Trumpism endures. And so what's interesting here is it's not – I get the rage part, okay? I get the rage part that people are mad about a particular issue. They're mad about the economy. They're mad about what they perceive to be a stolen election. They're mad about whatever. And Donald Trump has been brilliant at harnessing that rage over the years at making himself to be an outsider as well, harnessing that rage and kind of using it to his own advantage, okay? But then what I didn't what I didn't think about was this camaraderie, this community part, and this idea of um, we're in this together. There's a community. We're all fighting together. We wear the same things. We chant the same things, right? Let's go, Brandon, chant. 
that that comes out or whatever else it might be. And that's why that's what has caused people to not want to lose something. And I find this fascinating because here's what we say. This is the exact commitment that we long to have within the church. We have a mission. Trumpism would say here under French's article, the mission is uh, fueled by rage here. It's fueled by we have to make America great again. Now it's we have to take America back again. But there's a, also a joy this is why many of us have kind of been dumbfounded by the family and friends that maybe we have lost because they've been so bought into this movement. I think there's a joy and a camaraderie that I hope that churches are obviously for different reasons, but I hope that churches are defined by a, a unity of mission and a unity of we're in this together. And uh, you got to hand it to Donald Trump and to his his people. They have created a movement in which people say we're in this together. When they come for Trump, they come for me, right? That's often what you hear. And he says things like, I'm fighting for you. I'm standing in the way of them coming for you. And there's kind of this martyrdom feel to it. And it's, it is it is kind of wild. You still see the following he gets, and you still see the reaction that people have to him. David French ends his article this way. Evangelicals are a particularly illustrative case. About half of self-identified evangelicals now attend church monthly or less often. They have religious zeal, but they lack religious community. So they find their band of brothers and sisters in the Trump movement. Even among actual church-going evangelicals, political alignment is often so important that it's hard to feel a true sense of belonging unless you're ideologically united with the people in the pews around you. During the Trump years, French writes, I've received countless email messages from distraught readers that echo a similar sentiment or theme. My father, and he writes parenthetically, or mother or uncle or cousin is lost to MAGA. They can seem normal, but they're not, at least not any longer. And then he writes, it's hard for me to know what to say in response, but one thing is clear. You can't replace something with nothing. And until we fully understand that uh, what that something is, and that it includes not only passionate anger, but also very real joy and a deep sense of belonging, then our efforts to persuade are doomed to fail. A very real joy and a deep sense of belonging. I, I, this is interesting. And it's very well might be above all policy, above all other things, could very well be the re, the reason that, uh, that we find Donald Trump back in the White House one day. I think those on the outside of the movement don't understand what is really fueling it and fueling those on the inside. Well, coming up next, Nine Marks said this, what is the primary goal in preaching specifically simple sermons? What is a simple sermon and why should that be our goal? We're going to talk preaching next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Preaching. I'm a preacher. I'm a pastor, Aubrey as well. She does a lot of teaching both in her church and outside of her church. A lot of pastors who listen to the show, also a lot who join us on the show. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask this question. 
even if you're not a pastor, you just attend church, what's the point or not point? What is the makes for the most effective sermon? Think about the best preachers you've heard. What makes them effective? I, you know, I think about some of the best preachers and they're compelling, right? There's something about story uh, that, you know, that can bring you in. There's humor. There's other things that bring you in. But I do think there was this movement a couple of years ago that kind of tried to say, you need to be really long. You need to be robust. You need to be this or that. Uh, but something that I saw at Nine Marks the other day, I thought was a great reminder to me. And I would love to bring to you, and it's this, Pastor, aim to preach simple sermons. This is written by Jeff Wisner. He writes, not long ago, a fellow pastor recommended Simplicity in Preaching by J.C. Ryle. The practical benefit of Ryle's essay on my preaching and congregation cannot be exaggerated. In fact, this quote serves as a screensaver for him. He writes, Ryle wrote, unless you are simple in your sermons, you will never be understood. And unless you are understood, you cannot do good to those who hear you. So the goal is not to sound smart or important or whatever else is. The goal is to be understood. And his point is to be understood, you need to be simple. So what's he mean by simple? He said, uh, Relative to the amount of time preachers spend in critical study of a text, how much attention is given to attaining simplicity in preaching? He said, I've come to believe that faithful preaching is marked by simplicity and simple preaching best serves others by communicating the point of the passage in a clear and Christ-centered way. He starts to define simplicity. The late Dr. Haddon Robinson, who is one of the leaders in in kind of talking about preaching and teaching on preaching, one of the best preachers ever while he was alive. The late Dr. Haddon Robinson repeatedly exhorted, quote, a sermon should be a bullet, not a buckshot. That rather than spray every idea from a passage onto the congregation, a sermon should contain one, quote, big idea in a simple clear and concise manner. In other words, the main point of the passage should be the main point of the message. The main point of the passage should be the main point of the message. I get this, especially when you're younger and you're trying to prove yourself. You come to a passage and you're like, I want to tell you everything that's in every minute Greek word, every minute detail of this passage, as opposed to saying, here's the big passage. Here's what I want you to leave with. And here's the test. He says later, pastor, are you able to summarize every sermon in a sentence? Or if you prefer a tweet, if not, then you might not yet understand the text you're preaching. And if there's a mist in the pulpit, basically, if you're not understanding, you can be assured there will be a fog in the pews. J.C. Ryle goes on to write, Mind then when your text is chosen that you understand it and see right through it, that you know precisely what you want to prove, what you want to teach, what you want to establish, and what you want people's minds to carry away. If you yourself begin in a fog, you will leave your people in darkness. Simple preaching that is useful to souls begins with clearly and concisely exposing the point of the passage. He goes on to say, use simple language, 
exalt Christ, always point back to Jesus. Uh, He says, simply put, the primary goal in preaching simple sermons, in exposing the point of a passage and employing simple language, is for God's people to see Christ more clearly and to love him more dearly. I guess it's this. Our pride says, I want people to see how smart I am. Our pride says, I want people to know how much time I've put into understanding the languages and this, that. But the point of this passage is like, as you work and work through those things, a real sign that you're understanding the text, a real sign that you've put in the work is the ability uh, to, to share it in a simple and targeted way. It's a bullet, not a buckshot. It's saying, I want you to live because basically this. What do you want your people to be able to do, pastor, when they leave your service, when they leave from sitting underneath your preaching? I think that the the answer to that uh, is that we want to have our people leave there and be able to answer the question, what was talked about today? What did you learn today? What was the takeaway today? And that gets to the one big idea that if I could get to the end of the message and say, this is what I want you to take home with you today. This is the takeaway. And then later I talk to them. Let's say I talk to somebody an hour later and I'm able to say, hey, what was the takeaway today? If they can tell you, then boom, you've done your job. But if they can't, uh, then, then I think you got a problem. The goal is not to try to help people see how smart you are, how much work you've done, how much Greek and Hebrew you know. You want people to leave being able to go, this is what we talked to. This is the point. This is the one big idea of the passage we just talked about. This past Sunday, uh, yesterday, I talked about Nicodemus. We're doing a series in our church called Encounters with Jesus. And I talked about Nicodemus and I walked him through John 3, John 7, John 19. Nicodemus keeps coming and and we don't really, there's not this moment where Jesus says to Nicodemus, come and follow me. There's not this moment where Nicodemus just drops everything and goes, but it looks like much more of a process. And the takeaway for everybody there was uh, the, the takeaway to the, to the talk about Nicodemus is what we see in Nicodemus And what we see in our own lives is that faith in Jesus is a journey over time. And we unpack that. So therefore, keep praying for for your loved one who's who's walked away from the faith. Keep leaning into your own doubts, your own questions, because ultimately faith in Jesus is a journey over time. For you as well out there, you might pick, why don't I have it all figured out already? Why don't I already just... Why haven't I stopped sinning? Why don't I, why do I still have doubts? Because faith in Jesus is a journey over time. It's as Eugene Peterson said, a long obedience in the same direction. And so that was our big idea yesterday. Preachers, teachers out there, always ask yourself, do the work until you get to the point that you can say, uh, I, I, I've given them the takeaway. I've given them this. Coming up next, we're going to end by revisiting something that we talked uh, to the author about a few weeks ago or yeah, a couple months ago. 
Alan Noble wrote at Christianity Today, getting out of bed is an act of worship. I want to end by uh, encouraging us with that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, we love to end our shows with encouragement, with challenge, with just what can we leave you with? And I want to revisit something. We talked to Alan Noble about this back in April. Uh, I think it was then. Uh, we talked to Alan Noble um, from his book, but there was, was an article out of Christianity Today, uh, Getting Out of Bed is an Act of Worship. And he wrote this to particularly talk about mental health issues, that there are days some of us deal with mental health issues like they are they are clinical, they are medical. But he also wanted to acknowledge that for some people, life could just be overwhelming. There are good days and bad days, ups and downs, even if you don't have, struggle with mental illness, uh, that there could be good days, there could be bad days, there could be ups, there could be downs. Uh, and so he says, how do we do this? Well, first, as churches, we acknowledge that these happen. So many years, and I think the church is a lot better at this now, we as Christians, but for so many years, uh, there was a lack of an even acknowledgement, right? We are supposed to be joyful. The joy of the Lord, the book of Philippians tells us over and over again. If Paul being chained to a Roman prison can have joy, then surely I must be joyful. And we've, we, we kind of conflated joy and happiness. And we said, if you're a good Christian, you will not struggle. And all that led to was people struggling in quiet and not feeling the ability to um, be open about their struggles. But Alan Noble wants to say something, I think, so simple and so profound. He says, getting out of bed is an act of worship. When things are going badly, when you're struggling with your mental health, getting out of bed is an act of worship. When things feel overwhelming, when things feel like the storm is going to overtake you. Getting out of bed is an act of worship. He writes this. Uh, so why get out of bed? Even when it feels like a burden, your life is a gift from God, a gift he created and sustains moment by moment in an infinite act of love. The goodness of this gift does not depend on how we feel or what we experience but our challenge is to live out that gift each day, even amid our mental suffering. Rising out of bed to face the day and to bear the mundane burden of living with mental illness or facing the acute suffering of life's troubles is an act of worship. It declares the goodness of life in defiance of the fall. It is a spiritual act of presenting your body as a living, sacrificing, pleasing to the Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Sometimes your mind uh, and the world will lie to you. They will insist on the meaninglessness of life. They will insist that there is no joy, peace, or hope. And in such moments, we might cry out like Elijah, like Elijah, I've had enough, Lord. But rather than chastise Elijah for his weakness or lack of hope, the Lord sent an angel to feed Elijah in the wilderness. That is the God we serve, a God who prepares a table in the wilderness for those who feel helpless, hopeless. And sometimes you find yourself at that table. But when you choose to rise out of bed each day, you also set a table for your neighbor. You declare with your being and actions that life isn't itself. Life itself is good. Whether you like it or not, your life is a witness that testifies to the goodness of God. 
So when we embrace our existence, we testify loudly to our neighbors, get up and eat. Like in 1 Kings 19, there is hope. God has not. He does not forsake us. I'm going to finish reading some more of this in a second, but I find that to be so helpful from Alan Noble. Because so many of us have, have kind of get the impression, I got to pretend, I got to pretend. No, he says, just get out of bed. By getting out of bed, we're acknowledging that life is good, that God is present, and that we can trust him. And so we get out of bed and we keep going. He says, for many of us, rising out of bed will at times take a Herculean effort, but it is precisely in these moments when our witness is most profound. We take on the burden of mental affliction because we know that at the center of our existence is not hopelessness and suffering, but grace, God's grace. We act uh, based on that grace, even when our hearts feel only hopelessness. And when our neighbors see us rising up to affirm the basic goodness of life, they are reminded that their lives are good too. Unfortunately, some of us will experience periods of such acute suffering that getting out of bed is unimaginable. In those times, we must come to rely on the help of others to carry us. He says, one of the most sacred acts of mercy we can offer is the willingness to lift one another up when we've lost all hope. This can come in the form of sending an encouraging text message or sitting with someone who is in despair or even giving a hug. And the grace you receive when one of your neighbors carries you will one day be transfigured into the grace you extend to others when they need to be carried. Acknowledging the reality that all of us will suffer mentally at some point in life does not diminish the beauty of life. It is precisely in our moments of hopelessness that we can most powerfully testify to the beauty of life by getting out of bed. One day the suffering will pass, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, but certainly in eternity with God. But for now, our duty is to live out the truth that our created existence was and is a loving act from a God of grace. Friends, I, I think there's some of you that need to hear that today. Like you feel like getting out of bed, putting one step in front of the other, just going on with your life is impossible. But Alan Noble says one day that suffering will pass. Certainly in eternity, but maybe today, maybe tomorrow. But for now, what is our duty? It is to live out the truth that our created existence was and is a loving act from a God of grace, that he can be trusted, that he is good, that life is good because of him. And so therefore we will endure, trusting that things will in fact at some point get better. Such great words from Alan Noble there. Getting out of bed is an act of worship especially when we face the mundane burdens of enduring suffering while living with mental affliction. Get out of bed. Keep going. God is good. Well, tomorrow, Aubrey will be back with us again on Tuesday. We hope that you will join us. And until then, have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.